Well, great. Good to see you men here. I appreciate you being here early on a Sunday morning for Sunday school. And uh, we're obviously beginning a week of revival meetings. And this is really, it's really a revival meeting is just pursuing the presence of God because He is revival. And when you start uh, knowing the reality of His presence, you are revived. Uh, you know, many times we, uh, we uh, seek a, uh, an experience, but we're really seeking a person. And that's the reality of revival. And um, yeah, revival sometimes, I remember growing up, kind of got elusive, kind of got mystical, kind of got difficult to grasp. But I was learned the fact that revival is Jesus. He is revival. He is the life. And so um, uh, that kind of simplified it. And really walking revival is just walking with the Lord Jesus. Uh, a walk of faith and there'll be rest in that. Well, I don't know how much we're going to do on this. I'm going to mention this in a moment because this is what you might call the theology behind revival. And I'm going to, if I was teaching you in a systematic theology, this particular thing would be anthropology. And this would be this, the Bible's biblical psychology of man. And uh, that's where it would come in. If I wanted to impress you and use big words, that's what I'd say. Okay. Uh, but uh, this is in a moment we'll go over this. But, we, you know, every single one of us are, is on a journey. Have you ever noticed that? And uh, your journey may be different than mine. I tell people this about revival. Every revival is different and every revival is the same. You say, what does that mean? Well, the circumstances are different. The names are different. But the, the thing that's the same is it's the same spiritual dynamic. It's the Lord Jesus at work. And so that's the way it works in, in theology. And, and so all of us are on a journey. Our journeys are all the different and our journeys are all the same. In one way, they're all the same in the sense that if there's going to be a power and effectiveness and joy and peace, it comes through walking with Jesus. Now, our circumstances may be different and the things that happen are different. Now, I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I want to start before I go into this. It might be a little disconnected, but I think it might help us when we're talking about the journey. Back when I was a kid, I had a wonderful father. Thank the Lord. Uh, I, the memory of the just is blessed. And... Uh, I thank the Lord for his teaching. And really, in a certain sense, I know he believed all this and taught this. But when I was young, I didn't get it. Uh, but, the, the, but, but he laid a foundation so that when I began to read and hear these things in college, I began to have illumination, light bulb moments, if you will. And I said, okay, now I understand what dad was talking about. So I thank the Lord for the theological foundation uh, of my father. Uh, and even in his day, people called him a mystic. Now, I don't necessarily like the word mystic, but what they meant was uh, my dad believed that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ right now. It was real. And it wasn't just academic. It wasn't just words on a page. It was dynamic. And uh, so, um, but I remember he, uh, he had a message where he taught this, and he taught the fact that the Christian life is an illustration of the dispensations. Now, how many of you are familiar with dispensations or dispensationalism? Okay, okay. So, some of you are, and uh, uh, there's pretty much two ways to inter uh, to approach the Bible. One is Reformed and one is dispensational approach. Uh, I'm largely driven to dispensationalism because of the hermeneutic. You say, what's that? That's the principle of interpretation. Uh, dispensationalism demands a literal hermeneutic. In other words, you take the Bible as it was written. And uh, so very important. Otherwise, if you get into allegory and things like that, you can pretty much make it say whatever you want it to say. And so we believe in a literal approach to the Word of God, which means you will be a dispensationalist, just the way it is. Now, but the dispensations, my dad used to show that not all of these can you find in Scripture, but most of you can, that are literally stages in the Christian life. Okay, when you got saved, guess what happened? You are in the first dispensation. You know what that's called? Innocence. Sometimes people get saved and they think, man, I'm never going to sin again. Man, I, I'm saved. Hallelujah. I'm, uh, you know, you remember that? Innocence didn't last long, didn't it? Didn't last long with Adam and Eve either, okay? 
And then what happens? You sin. And guess what bothers you? Your conscience. I have kids that come and get saved on a Wednesday night at the war. The next night they come back to get saved again. And you sit down with them and you say, why, why? I thought you got saved last night. Well, I did, but I, I cursed today. I felt terrible about it. I said, well, did you curse two weeks ago? Yeah, I did. Did you feel bad about that? No. <laughs> okay, that old conscience kicked in, didn't it? Didn't have it before. The Holy Spirit takes that conscience. And uh, John 8 talks about the Holy Spirit convicted their consciences. And so he convicts the conscience. And uh, so you got in that second stage where you're kind of living by conscience. And then somewhere along the line, generally, you get into human government and legalism or the law. Kind of put those together. Uh, many times new believers, they find some Christian leader and they just follow them just like to a T, and they follow that human government, and kind of also they follow the rule book, okay? So their law, they get into legalism. And uh, now I want you to understand something about legalism or the law. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the law. You know what the Bible says? The law is holy, just, and good. When God says thou shalt not, that's not bad. When God says thou shalt, that's not bad. The problem with the law is this. It has no power to help you keep it. All the law does is expose the fact that you're not keeping it. And not only does it expose the fact you can't keep it, it provokes you to not keep it. Now, that's kind of odd, isn't it? You, you understand this. Have you ever noticed that when somebody says, now, you need to do this, the first thing that comes up in your heart is, no way, man, I'm not doing that. Now, why is that? Sometimes parents use reverse psychology. You know what I mean? Hey, don't clean up your kid, your room, kid. Just don't clean it up. I'm coming, you know, and then they clean it. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, reverse psychology. I'm just teasing. But uh, you ever gone by a wall? says, wet paint, do not touch. A little. You've walked by that wall a million times. Never been tempted to, to touch it. But when they put a little sign up there, do not touch, what do you want to do? You want to touch it. Now, that's weird. You ever gone out in a nice neighborhood, you know, you know, well-manicured lawns, you know, walking down the sidewalk, a little sign, keep off the grass. You know what we do? We're walking down that sidewalk. We see that thing. We just step on the grass and keep going. Now, your very laughter shows me you understand this dynamic. See, the law not only cannot give you the power to obey, it uh, provokes you to disobey. Now, that's odd, isn't it? So many people get in that second, uh, that, that fourth phase of the Christian life, third, fourth phase, human government, legalism, and pretty soon they realize the law is powerless to enable them to do the right thing. And many times they come to despair. And that's found in Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You know, many times we quit there, but there is an answer. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I always say failure is God's reminder you cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. Failure is not all bad. Failure drives us to Jesus if we'll look the right way. Amen. And that brings us into the grace. I don't know how many times people who've got a hold of, sometimes we call it revival truth or the spirit-filled life or whatever, walking in the spirit. God's word puts it many different ways, abiding in the vine. We, we get into that and I've heard people say, whoa, it was like getting saved all over again. And you know what happens when people get into the grace? They almost fall into the same trap they did at innocence. Oh, man, I got this thing now. Man, I'm going to live a victorious Christian life. I, I've got it figured out now. Wow, this is the secret. I'm not diminishing the reality of the great truths of grace. But you remember there's another dispensation coming. You know what that's called? Tribulation. Suffering. Many times when we get a hold of grace, you know what God says? 
I got another stage for you. Because you know what happens with tribulation, it works patience. And we're going to probably talk about that this Sunday morning. And it gets you into a point where you learn to walk with God even when you can't see God. You learn to trust God when you're going through difficulty that makes no sense. And uh, uh, that teaches you something that is absolutely essential. And I'm just running through this. That brings you to what we might call kingdom rest. And kingdom rest, you have to go through tribulation to get there. And it's where you learn to trust God all the time, anything going through. And that's what we call not perfection, but it is spiritual maturity. And I think Hebrews 3 and 4 teach us about that. So um, so we are in a pilgrimage. You understand that. All of us are different things. Sometimes I have noticed this. People can get caught up in legalism and become a really good legalist. And by the way, I think every Christian goes through that stage. I would say there might be an exception where somebody enters by Kadesh Barnea. Do you know what I mean, I mean by that? <laughs> yeah, you didn't have to go through the wilderness. You just right from the Christian life came right in to um, live in a victorious Christian life. That's very rare that people enter by Kadesh Barnea. So most of the time, everybody goes through a legalism phase in your life. Probably most of you can remember that. And here's the danger. Sometimes when people go through a legalism part of their life, they take that and they just lay that over everybody and assume everybody's that way. But, you know, people are at different points in their Christian life. And uh, so we have to recognize you can be stepping into grace and still have some legalistic thinking. You know, sometimes as a preacher, I'll look back and say, you know what? Even though I understood what I understood now, I understand it now better, and I wouldn't say it that way because it's confusing. Okay, so we're all on a journey is what I'm trying to say. You need to give people understanding that they're on a journey. Now, I want us to now deal, if I could please, because once you get into grace, this begins to become an understanding that you maybe didn't have before. Now, let's talk about the flesh. And by the way, we're talking about the immaterial parts of man. Now, when I talk about the flesh, the word sarks, the word for flesh, has really two main definitions in the Bible. One is, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What do you think that's talking about? And the answer is, your human frame. Every one of us has a human frame. We have flesh, flesh and blood, that is not inherently evil. If you look at flesh as inherently evil, you have gotten into Greek dualism. Okay, so the flesh is just the frame, the human frame that we have. Where Adam and Eve before the fall, was their flesh sinful? And the answer is... No, no, it was just a human frame. Okay, we understand that. One day this human frame is going to be glorified. Okay, uh, so we don't understand it all, but it'll be glorified. So when I'm talking about the flesh now, I'm using the second definition. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness. Okay, so we know that that's talking about the immaterial part of man. Everybody in this room understands there's something inside of you that tries to pull you away from God. Yeah. Everybody has it. That's right. The flesh... Lotheth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, the latter part of the verse has found the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood is the mood of possibility. And what it's saying is this. Because we have a flesh-spirit battle, there's a really good possibility that we're not going to do everything we ought to do. Have you found that to be true in your life? Have you found itself to say, you know what, I know I should have done better than this, but uh, that's the flesh-spirit battle so that we may not do the things that we want to do. Okay, it just happens. And it's not, it's not what we want it that way. It's the mood of possibility. It's not saying it has to be that way, because in theory, we should be in victory all the time. Yeah. But uh, we're not. And as a result of that, friends, uh, we have times of defeat. And so I want us to 
understand something theologically. God's put me on a journey, and it's not that that I'm uh, finished with it. I, I uh, of course, wrote a book called Zero One Hundred, and uh, some of you read it, I, I assume, because I know it's been here. And that is pretty much the truth that Christ lives in me. And man, he's a hundred, I'm zero. I'm trusting him uh, to enable me to do what I could never do unless he enabled me to do it. But I'm working on a second book. I haven't started writing it yet. It's all in the brain right now. And that is zero in 100. So the great truth that Christ lives in us, but there's another truth, and that is that I'm in Christ. Okay, so they're both directions. And uh, so my burden, of course, is to get sanctification down to a level for a teenager to understand it. And that's always been my goal because I believe we have in youth work for decades dumbed down youth ministry. I believe a kid can be 16 years old and get a hold of uh, great spiritual truth that will change their life. I believe that. Had a 16-year-old kid travel with me years ago. He asked if he could. Went for one or two weeks. He's now an evangelist. He's got a full schedule. God's blessing him. And what happened in those two weeks is God opened his eyes to Romans chapter 6. Not many 16-year-old kids get Romans chapter 6, but I think one of the reasons is is because we don't think they'll get it, so we never present it. And it absolutely transformed his life, uh, that truth. Now, back to the flesh. Let's go back here for a moment. Um, the Bible says with uh, in our flesh, Romans chapter 7, verse 18 says, In my flesh dwelleth anybody know? No good thing. Okay, so right here, uh, we're going to put this out here. You got the three, the, the flesh is the perimeter, and then, of course, the soul, the mind, will, and emotions. And I'm a tripart guy, tripartite, whatever you want to call it, guy. And then uh, in the center of your being is what we might call the spirit. Uh, the spirit, little less. Okay, you understand. Uh, many times we talk about people say, well, before I got saved, um, I didn't have a spirit. Oh, actually, you do. Your spirit is dead in this sense. It's dead to God. I want to ask you a question. Can unsaved people connect with the spirit world? And the answer is, yeah, yeah. the dark spirit world. Yeah. Do unsaved people have demonic encounters? And the answer is, yeah. oh, absolutely they do. Yeah. Talk to any missionary on planet Earth. And I know missionaries have said, I've never seen the demons, but the people have. So their spirit is not non-existent. It's dead to God. And it's alive to the dark spirit world. There's a spirit, and uh, that we would call the old man. Now, hopefully you wouldn't use this language, but that's not talking about your dad, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, yeah, the old man. Now, I want you to understand something about the old man. It always sins. It always sins. Remember that verse of Scripture puzzled me for a while? The plowing of the wicked is sin. You ever drive down the road, see a guy out plying his field? You could get out and say, that guy's sinning. If he's unsaved, he's sinning. You say, how can you say that? Anything a lost man does sin, sinful. You say, why? Because it is all absolutely filled with wrong motives. A lost man can't help but sin. Everything he does is selfish. Even when he gives to a, you know, some kind of relief organization, he's not doing it for grand motives. <laughs> He's got ulterior motives, and it's all selfish. That's just the way lost people are. They completely sin 24-7. By the way, that's why when lost people die and go to hell, that's why they have to go to hell. Remember years ago, hearing the story of an airplane pilot, they had a recording, and he, there was something that was on the ground, but there was a collision. And his last word before the collision was a curse word. And I thought to myself, probably his first word on the other side was a curse word. 
And you see, people in hell, all they can do is sin. You know why? Because this is where they are. It's all they can do is sin in hell. They'll sin for eternity. That's why hell has to be eternal. Are you tracking with me? Yeah, see. Now there's just constant sinning. They may not be able to do things, but in their heart, they're cursing, they're swearing, they're hating God, you know, it's all there. Okay, so uh, hopefully you're tracking with me thus far. Uh, Now, when you got saved, guess what happened to the old man? And the answer is, Romans 6, verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Um, What happened at that moment is when you got saved, I don't know how to explain this, but when you got saved, something happened. And that, that you didn't even probably realize at the time is, you were put into union with Jesus Christ. You were in Christ. So that at that moment, his history became yours. Years ago, J. Vernon McGee, the great radio preacher, how many are familiar with him? He's got one of those distinct radio voices, J. Vernon McGee. Okay, you know I'm talking about. Uh, But anyway, he was in the Bible lands. And if you don't, maybe not know this, but on top of what we would call Golgotha, the place of the skull, is a Muslim graveyard. And they won't let you in. Well, if you know anything about, you know, Middle East, whatever, the only way in is to bribe. So J. Vernon McGee bribed the Muslim um, gatekeeper to be able to go into the top of Calvary. And so he went up to the very top of Calvary where many scholars believe the Lord Jesus was crucified. There's others who believe was down below, but there's won't go into all that. And uh, as he was there, he was overcome with emotion. And... Um, the gatekeeper looked at him, the Muslim gatekeeper, and said, you ever been here before? And J. Vernon McKee says, yes, I have. Yes, I have. He says, when were you here? He said, I was here 2,000 years ago. You say, preacher, I've never been to the Bible lands. Oh, yeah, you have. Yeah. When you got saved, you were put into Jesus. And when he died, you died. And this part of you, this part of you was crucified. It's, it's, okay, got the wrong one. Let me get the marker over here. Okay, we'll get it down here, folks. Okay, this part was crucified. And what happened was you um, were regenerated. Now, help me, I'm going to help you understand regeneration. You were regened. You got new genetics. You were born, anybody help me out now, again. You were born of the Spirit. You say, well, preacher, I didn't feel it. That's not the point. That's what happened. At that moment, there was complete change of center. So now your spirit has been regened. It's been created in righteousness and true holiness. You have a new man inside. And it reminds me of the story of C.T. Studd. Uh, Before he got saved, his dad, Edward Studd, got saved. Now, Edward Studd was a very rich man. He'd made a lot of money when England was in colonial. I think it was through India, colonial rule. I can't remember if it was tea or whatever, but he made a, a fortune. Rich man, lived there in England. And uh, Edward Studd one day had a friend over for dinner, and he didn't realize the friend had gotten saved. So he turned to the friend and said, well, what do you want to do tonight for entertainment? The Queen's Opera House, what do you want to do? He said, I'd like to go. And he named a hall. He said, isn't that where that American evangelist Moody is preaching? He said, yes, it is. Well, he made the promise. He didn't want to go, so he went. 
The place was full and Edward Studd was really relieved. He thought, well, we can't get in. But this friend of his was not deterred, so he wrote a little note, handed it to somebody, an usher there, and before he knew it, he and Edward Studd were like on the second row of that big auditorium. Old Moody got preaching that night, and the Holy Spirit came down on that rich man, and I'm telling you, God got a hold of that rich man, and Edward Studd, and he got saved. Amen. Reminds me of another story. I'm going to make another rabbit trail here real quickly. My dad told me years ago, Doc Bob Sr. was preaching, and as he was preaching, uh, the, the pastor was rattled. He leaned over and said, that's the richest man in town just walked in here. Well, Dr. Bob wasn't deterred by that. Got up and started preaching the gospel, I mean, up one down side and down the other. And he said, that old rich man, enfeebled, started walking down the aisle, and the preacher got real rattled, came over, started dusting off the, the place where he was going to kneel. And, uh, and, the, and Dr. Robert Sr., uh, well, it frustrated him, irritated him a little bit. You know, he got down next to that old sinner, that, uh, that rich man, got down and said, Sir, if you don't get to Jesus, you're going to die in your sins and go to hell. Of course, the pastor's rattled like this, you know. And you know what that old man did? He began to weep. He said, you're right, Dr. Bob, and he got saved. Yeah, rich people get saved the same way poor people get saved. They come to the cross. Well, anyway, old Edward Studd, the rich man, got saved, and his life radically changed. Someone came to his estate to do a little research and maybe write an article and started talking to his servants, and here's what they said. They said, all we can say is this. All those, there's the same skin. There's a new man inside. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what we're talking about. Amen. You got the same skin. If you're ugly before you get saved, you're still ugly. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you got the same skin, okay? But you got a new man inside, created righteousness, true holiness. Now, I want to show you something that I hope will blow you away if you haven't already got a hold of this. Go to 1 John chapter number 3. 1 John chapter number 3. We're going somewhere. We're going somewhere, and I'm hoping you'll help uh, stick with me all the way till we get the plane landed. Uh, but let's go to 1 John. Chapter number three, this is phenomenal. Hopefully it'll help you understand something here. Look at verse number nine. It says, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now let me stop for a moment. I have heard commentators, uh, read commentators, or heard preachers say, well, that oh, that's in the present tense. So it means if you get saved, you're not going to constantly sin. I don't believe that's what it's saying. When it says you cannot commit sin, I believe it means that literally. And as I understand it, that is actually neutral there, the, uh, the um, pronoun there. So it's whatsoever is the idea. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. You say, what, what does that make sense? Not well here in a moment. For his seed, whose seed? God's. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. Why? Because he is born of God. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This part of you can't sin. If you're saved this morning, the new man inside of you can't sin. It just can't do it. Why? Because it's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Literally, it's the sperma of God. That's the word. The seed of God is in you. You have been born again. See, if you get a hold of that, many people, I know you've heard this here at Canaan more than other places. But many times we are far more identified by our sinful past than we are by who we are in Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, I've spent time in jail for being a thief. I don't know if anybody has, so I'm just speaking rhetorically here. I'm a thief. Well, maybe you are over here, here, 
But as far as here, no, you're not a thief. You're a new man. That's not who you are, front and center. So I got a question for you. A million years from now, where will your flesh be? Well, it's not going to be with you. So your flesh is not who you are, and your flesh does not identify you. You're identified, I want to ask you a million years from now, where will your new man be? And the answer is, that's who I am now. That's who you'll be. That's why when you go to heaven, you don't have to worry about sinning. Because you get rid of this, and all you got left is this, and it can't sin. So when you get a hold of that, theologically, you say, well, preacher, I don't feel it practically. That's not the point. This is what it is. And your flesh is constantly trying to get you to think that the flesh is the center instead of the new man. And if you, if you think this is the center, this is who I am, that's why you end up in sin all the time. If you believe this is who I am, then you have the very basis to live a victorious Christian life because that's who you are. That's the regenerated part of you. You've been regened. Now, one of the things that can help you as far as regeneration is concerned is DNA. Well, let me, it's so many things. I'm, and I'm going to refer to this as the week goes on. So some of you might have to get your, get your wife up to speed on some of it. I'll try to review some of it. But, um, Many of us are familiar with metamorphosis. Of course, that word is, is the Greek word uh, transformed there in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, For I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Literally, the word we get metamorphosis from is the word transformed. Now, when a little worm, uh, worm or caterpillar to be more accurate, is climbing up a tree, um, you might look at that and say, well, it sure doesn't look like a butterfly to me. But I want to ask you a question. What's its DNA? And the Bible, and the tr- truth is, we all know the DNA is, it's a butterfly. Amen. That's its DNA. That's who it really is. So what does that caterpillar need to do to turn into a butterfly? And the answer is time. Yeah. Time. And in time, there's an automatic ret- maturing process that results in it being a butterfly. And we know in time it's completely metamorphosized. But the truth is, that DNA was there at the very beginning. Now, the difference between a caterpillar and a human being is this. In nature, it's automatic. The clock just ticks and that all automatically happens, just nature. But in the Bible, the Bible makes one qualification for you and I. You will not be transformed unless you do what? You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Say, why are you presenting this? Because I want your mind to get renewed. (laughs) See, when you begin to understand truth, God begins, that's what kicks the metamorphosis into, and so you begin to, what you really are here begins to be fleshed out through here. Now, if we could put this, the soul is where you make the decisions, which one you're going to live by, okay? So on the perimeter, you've got the flesh. Now, this verse right here is a great verse because it helps us understand the relation between the flesh and the soul. So here it is. Dearly beloved, I, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, help me out now, which war against the soul. So the flesh is constantly warring against the soul. What does it want the soul to do? It wants the will to make a decision to say yes to the flesh. Have your, has your will ever said yes to the flesh? All of us have. That's why we're being defeated, and we're not living out who we really are. We've bought into the lie. 
So the soul is making the decision, which way are we going to go? Bless the Lord, O my soul. So that would be okay. I'm tapping into the new man here. Uh, that's, uh, that's the idea. So you, got, you have to understand, this is where you and I make the decisions of where we're going to live, flesh or new man. Now let me show you another verse, Romans chapter 7, if you will, please. Romans chapter number 7. Maybe a verse of Scripture you've seen before, but hopefully in the context of our little diagram here, it'll make a little more sense. But Romans chapter number 7, and uh, let's start in verse number 14. So verse number 14, Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold unto sin. Okay, remember, the problem is not what God says. It's not the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. The problem is, I'm carnal. Let me just stop there for a moment, because I think this is important. I travel in Christian school work uh, every semester except for the even year um, uh, spring. So that would be this spring, except for the one week with Austin and um, Luke. So um, I'm in all kinds of Christian schools, and I've done this now for since the mid-90s, been in a lot of Christian schools, and I found something about a Christian school. Every Christian school, I mean everyone, no exception, has a rule about skirt length for the girls. They all do. They all have a rule. And it all has to do with one certain part of the anatomy, and that is the knee. You know why? Most every girl has one. So it all has to do with the knee. Okay, sometimes it's mid-knee, sometimes it's below the knee, sometimes it's right at the top of the knee. I've even known once Christian school was two inches above the knee, which I can't see, but anyway. And then I've seen them two inches below, whatever. But they all have to do with the knee. Now, in almost every Christian school, and I've not really investigated this, but pretty much in every Christian school, you know what you're going to find? A group of girls that don't like the skirt length rule. They want it to be longer, right? No, yeah, no. Okay, in their naivety, they want it to be shorter. Every school. So let's imagine a group of these girls goes to the principal. They sit down with the principal and they make their case. And let's imagine the principal saying, you know, we got a lot of unrest going on right now. I just can't handle this one right now. So he agrees to switch the skirt length rule and make it, you know, an inch or two higher, whatever, whatever they wanted. Has he solved the problem? No, he hadn't solved the problem because the problem wasn't the rule. The problem was their own hearts. Are you with me? You need to understand when you chafe at the rules, it is only indication the problem is not the rules, the problem's right here. That's very important for us to see that because many times we do chafe at the rules. And again, like I said, the rules are powerless to change us. They can only expose us and provoke us. And that's why it's important for us to see Romans chapter 7. In fact, by the way, if I can help you with this, just Romans chapter 6 tells us what to do when we want to sin. Okay, whenever you want to sin, you know what you need? Romans 6. Romans 7 has a different problem. Romans 7 was written not because I want to sin. Romans 7 was written because I want to do right. It's addressing the problem I want to do right. You say, preacher, that's a problem? Yeah, it is. Because if you're trying to do right in human strength, trying to keep the rule book, you're going to be provoked and you're going to step over the line. That's, uh, that's why many times, let's just take the moral issue. Uh, some of you men out here, we all recognize in the world in which we live that um, sexual temptation is a very much of a reality. Uh, unfortunately, we don't live in Victorian era. We live in a pornographic society. Some of this room may have never seen what we would call classic pornography, but every one of us has seen 
pornographic situations because that's the kind of society we live in. Right. Whether it was a billboard, a magazine cover, or just somebody dressed out in the, we all understand that. And um, sometimes, you know, somebody gets hung up on the fact, oh, I got to have victory. You, is victory right? Yeah. It's wrong to lust? Yeah, it's wrong to lust. And I'm going to just tell you this. If you try to keep that in human, in human effort, you will actually be provoked to lust. You say, is that true? Yeah, well, actually, come back here and read uh, verse number 6 here. It says, uh, actually, verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, God forbid. Now I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. You see what God says there? And maybe you say, Preacher, I, I know young men who say, I'm preacher, I'm fighting hard, but I'm just so defeated. Well, you got the wrong focus. See, the, the focus is not trying to keep the law. I can't lust. I can't lust. Oh, I can't do it. I can't. That's the wrong focus. See, the focus needs to be on the positive side. In other words, when you're tempted to lust, let me give you a few things that can help. Number one, make that an immediate opportunity to pray offensively. Amen. So you start praying, Lord, that person... They're going to hell. Think about that woman as a woman. My wife will, will be driving down the road and my wife will say, insecure woman on the billboard to the left. My wife keeps calling, she didn't call them strange women, she calls them insecure women. Oh, Jim, there's an insecure woman over there on the, on the left. Don't look that way, look to the right. You know what that, you know what she's doing, don't you? She's trying to help me understand that's a woman in need. Yeah. Amen. Her flaunting is the fact she's got problems. Because women who are secure don't do that. Only insecure women do. That's right. She's looking for something she never got from her daddy or anybody else. And then, really, honestly, she's going to be a very poor candidate to be a wife because she needs affirmation of many men, not one. And she's in trouble. So one thing you can always do, God, work in her heart, help her to get saved. It's hard to lust after somebody you're praying for their salvation. What do you think? Amen. Amen. Get offensive. Like, it'd be like this. If I said, okay, man, I don't care what you think. Don't do it. I mean, do not do it. I do not want you to think about pink elephants. Do not think about pink. Did you get that? Don't think about pink. I, did you get that? Do not think about pink elephants. If you sit here, oh, I can't think about, you're in trouble. But if you say blue elephants, yeah, blue elephants, blue elephants, you've changed it from stop fighting the one to being offensive towards something else. Are you with me? So there's several different spiritual weapons you can have. This is a little sidelight here. But one of them is praying offensively. So maybe just be a deterrent. The moment you're tempted with lust, start praying for revival. Praying for your own life. Praying for your wife. Praying for whatever. That's offensive. You know what the devil's going to stop doing? He's saying, man, I don't need that, those guy, that guy's prayers. I can't tempt him anymore. Because <laughs> every time he's flipping into off offense. Remember the best defense is a good offense. Yeah, all of us football fans know that. And uh, uh, most of you, of course, you're probably your favorite NFL teams out of it. So hopefully today won't be an issue with you. But, um, uh, but you know, we all understand the importance of a good offense. And you, all you got is a good defense. You might win a few games, but you're not going to win the Super Bowl. You got to have some decent offense. Okay, so, so we get a hold of that. Now let me give you another offensive thing, gratitude. Amen. Gratitude. Do you know what often happens when we're tempted to lust? It's exactly what Romans said here, covetousness. Isn't it interesting in many of the New Testament lists of sexual sin has found the word covetousness? Yep. Say, why would you put 
Greed for money, and it's not greed for money. It's greed for something that's not yours. And every time Satan's tempting you to lust, he's trying to get you to think about a woman that's not yours. He's getting you to be discontent about what you do have. So here's what you do. Get grateful for your wife at that point. Hallelujah for my wife. Thank God for her. Man, I'm telling you, just start praising God for your wife. See, so, so anyway, what I, I'm trying to simply say is if we, if we try to fight the flesh without the spirit and without offense, we're going to be defeated. God's tell, telling us the law provokes us to sin. So we can't fall into that game, uh, trap. We need, uh, we need uh, to get a hold of this. So but anyway, we're coming down here. Let's get down to verse 15 now. And I'm, I appreciate you helping me chase a few rabbits here. Okay, so here it is. For that which I do, I allow not. For that which I would, that do I not. But what I hate... That do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent of the law that is good. Now notice this. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now here it is again. He says it twice. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now, is he abdicating responsibility? No. He's theologically helping you understand why you sin. It's like this, friends. Have you ever been at the point, I know I should have my devotions, but I don't. And I know I should pray, but I don't. And I know I shouldn't get angry, but I do. And I know I shouldn't lust, but I do. And I know I shouldn't waste time, but I do. Can you relate with that? And you know what the Apostle Paul, this is the Apostle Paul, by the way, that ought to encourage you. Amen. I think the Apostle Paul right here is, is kind of accounting to us his, his bout with legalism in the sanctification sense. He's already saved because you can't delight in the law of God after the inward man if you're lost. He has to be saved here, I, I believe. But the point is, uh, he's obviously provoked the sin and he can't figure out how to get to victory. But the thing, the reason I read Romans chapter 7 is, I wanted you to see what he said here. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now again, he, you, your, your will makes the decision to go with the flesh. So we're not sitting here saying, the devil made me do it. And abdicating personal responsibility. No, we have personal responsibility because the flesh is warring against the soul. When the soul says yes, then obviously we have, we have made a decision to be what we are not. We have made a decision to identify ourselves by something we are really not. So when it comes to all these things down, friends, the thing I, I guess I want to walk away with because we're, as we get into the week, I want you to, to recognize this is who you are in Christ. And there is honestly, for every one of us in this room, there are times that we don't, we're not identified by that because of our actions or because of the way we think. And we sometimes buy into the lie of the enemy. And as a result of that, friends, you'll never have victory if you don't realize who you really are. Now, understanding this for just a moment. Um, I've got to just look at my time here, see how we're doing here. Time. Okay. Understanding this, we'll just conclude in a moment. But understanding this, then uh, every single one of us can perhaps see verses maybe we've never thought of before. How about this one? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new 
new creature. Amen. Old things are passed away, behold. Okay, I'm going to ask you a practical question, just practical. How many of you, from the day you got saved to now, the old life is completely gone? Used to get angry? Never get angry. Used to lust? Don't lust. So how many would say practically, not, not okay, we just gave you the verse, practically, the moment you got saved to now, everything old is gone and everything new has come, and you never struggle with the old life? Would you raise your hand? I'm not raising mine. Say, what's the disconnect? The disconnect is that which is between our position and our condition. The truth is, if you're saved, everything old has passed away on your center of your being. And all things have become new in the center of your being. Okay, but we don't live there. But we could. How about this one? Thanks, now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. Okay, how many from the day you got saved to now, every temptation you've been victorious, every time the flesh, the devil, and the world came after you, you always came out on the top. From now, the, from the moment you got saved to now, would you raise your hand? I'm not raising mine. And if you did raise your hand, I'm assuming you got saved about two seconds ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you, you say, well, Richard, what does that mean? You always triumph in Christ. Right here, there is always victory. The Holy Spirit's always in victory. Did you know that? Amen. And he's in union with who you are now. Are you seeing these verses, friends? You're seeing that they do, they're really true. Sometimes we read those verses and we think, what in the world does that mean? Because that's not my experience. But there is always triumph right here. You say, Preacher, I'm the most defeated guy in this room. Well, that's because you're defeated over here, but you're not defeated here. You've got to stop believing the lie of the enemy that this defines you, but this is really what defines you. When you get a hold of that, friends, your past can no longer be your shackles. Amen. That's not who you are. Like I said a moment ago, when this flesh is gone, this is who you identify with, and when you get to heaven, you'll never sin. In other words, nothing will happen when, you, when you're glorified. In other words, how do I say it? It's already happened. You know, we've all heard that when you get saved, you're delivered from the penalty of sin. Now, if that's all salvation was, whoa, that'd be great, wouldn't it? And then we know sanctification is being delivered from the power of sin. And glorification is being delivered from the presence of sin. Well, that's a good thought, isn't it? But you know what? And I'm saying this practically. We don't live in the sweet by and by. We live in the nasty now and now. <laughs> yeah. The sweet by and by is coming. We live in the nasty now and now. And here's the point. Many Christians say, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. The flesh will be gone. Well, the Bible says you can deal with it right now. Amen. You don't have to live identified by the flesh. Now, don't miss this. So what does the Bible say? Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. And how about this one? Galatians 5.24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Now, don't miss this. You can't reform the flesh. Amen. You can't dress up the flesh. Right. You can't look to the flesh for energy and, and enablement. Flesh dependence. The flesh is your enemy. <laughs> he, is all, he is completely uh, on the opposite side. He's always pulling you away from God. He loves legalism. He loves license. He loves anything that's flesh. Flesh dependence, flesh indulgence. He doesn't care. See, flesh is out to destroy you, so there's only one thing you can do with the flesh, and that is crucified. Now, remember, your old man's already been crucified. He's gone. 
but your flesh is ever present with you. So here's what God says. you got to crucify it. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like crucifixion. <laughs> and I don't like death. Let me just tell you this. Ever been in an auditorium? Holy Spirit parked on your front door, porch, and he said, that preacher's talking about you. You ever had that happen? Then the Holy Spirit says, I want you to come down an aisle. You say, preacher, I don't, uh, Holy Spirit, I don't walk aisles. You know what the Holy Spirit says? You need to. Amen. You just need to die. Some of you in this room know what it is to die. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? You ever go into your wife and say, honey, I was wrong. I can't blame you at all. I'm just flat out wrong. I'm the problem in this marriage. Oh, you say, preacher, that would kill me. That's the point. That is the point. You cannot play with the flesh. You can't give it an inch. You can't give it any any kind of opportunity. You've got to say to the flesh, "You're done, buddy. I'm gonna I'm gonna kill you." And I'll tell you, friends, you and I will kind of feel like we're dying while we're doing it. I love my son-in-law. Again, he was with me last week, and he. Um, of course, had his own journey. So many, many of you are familiar with his own journey. He's been clear about three or four years now on the issue of pornography and the long God changed him completely. I think one of the reasons he's so unselfish, my, my daughter said to my wife about six months, a year ago, she said, Ryan is the most unselfish man I know on planet Earth. And she said, um, I, I see how selfish men are just because Ryan is so unselfish. I see how most selfish. And the reason is because when he really got into understanding what pornography was, he recognized pornography is nothing more than an expression of selfishness. And so what he has begun to do for years now is to absolutely crucify and mortify the flesh. And he has to make constant decisions. And I gave you some illustrations earlier today of his decision to, to, to crucify the flesh. Actually, a young man who's been in pornography who will come after the flesh and after selfishness will be a better husband than a guy who never got into pornography but doesn't realize that the flesh suddenly is there in other areas of his life. I, all of us know that sin is never a good deal, but one of the flip sides of sin is you can be a little more aggressive in dealing with it because it was clearly a part of your life that you've got to deal with. And every young man that gets married has to deal with this issue or self, as we talked about earlier, or he's in trouble. So... Uh, you got to crucify the flesh. In fact, uh, it's interesting that that uh, particular phrase there, they or Christ have crucified the flesh, is what they call the aorist tense, which views the action as a whole. But there are different usages. Now, you have to understand, usages are interpretational. They're not exegetical. Uh, different commentators are going to take different. I think that this is um, that, that they that have crucified the flesh may be what they call a constative aorist. And a constitutive aorist, if I was teaching Greek, and I'm not a great Greek scholar, but as I understand it, would be a dotted line. It's a series of crucifixions. And anybody who comes and surrenders to Jesus is facing a life of a series of flesh crucifixions. It never ends. Years ago, a professor at Bob Jones, I, I would disagree with him on this, said to the preacher boys, you know, there comes a time when you don't need to walk an aisle anymore. I disagree with that. God deals in your heart as a preacher, doesn't matter. If you need to, he tells you to walk an aisle, you walk an aisle. Amen. None of us outgrow the flesh spirit battle. Did you know that? Right. It's going to be with us till we are glorified. Amen. But God comes along and says, you need to crucify the flesh. You need to make a decision. Now that is also active in voice, which means it's a decision you and I have to do. In other words, when we crucify the flesh, the will here is if we could put it this way, the will's coming back at it across the line this direction. <laughs> 
and said, I'm going to put you to death. I'm going to die in this particular scenario, whatever it might be. Now, friends, everybody in this room, you can be the most defeated guy in this room. But everybody in this room, if you believe this, if you're saved on your way to heaven, if you believe this, has the tremendous possibility of victory. Why? Because that's who you are. Amen. How about this one? Uh, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who know no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Yes. Now, you were created in righteousness and true holiness, the new man. This is what we call imputed righteousness. Now, don't miss this. The moment you and I, by faith, step out and obey Jesus, depending on his strength, imputed righteousness becomes imparted righteousness. That's right. Jesus, the righteous one, when he enables us, he is literally giving us his righteousness as being fleshed out through our dependent obedience. See, deep down, friends, God is not intimidated by your failure. God is not up there wringing his hands and saying, this guy's bad off. God's up there saying, the moment you got saved, you have the solution. Nobody has to be defined by this. Now, as the week goes on, I'm going to kind of use some of this scenario, and we're going to, um, to kind of walk through some more practical things. Because it's like this, friends. How do I say this? Faith is not in a... Um, how do we say faith is not just uh, something out there that's com completely separate from our lives. Faith has, uh, there is a, uh, there's a, there's a, there's an action step to faith. And we're going to talk about that either this morning or tonight as the Lord leads. But faith without works is dead. Yeah. See, when the new man, the will says, okay, I believe I'm the new man. I'm going to take steps of faith depending on the new man to enable me to do what I couldn't do unless he enabled me to do it, you begin to see victory. So we'll deal with that some this week. But I want everybody to walk out of here encouraged and hopefully understand uh, what, what, what we all look like uh, from uh, God's perspective. And uh, the thing that is encouraging to me is that um, as, you, as you look through the Word of God, this is who God says we are. And so I hope you'll leave with that great encouragement. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us, I pray. Pray that you be with God's people. Just do something in our midst, I'm asking. And help us, Lord, to, to in many ways, just to walk out of these days with a, a greater understanding, our, our minds renewed. Lord, we will be transformed as we begin to have a renewal of thinking and renewal of understanding in who we are in Christ. So use it, I pray. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.